Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. I don't know if you can see, but I took your advice and I put a plant in the background. In terms of tonight's show, a new group of Tory MPs are pushing Sunak to block foreign workers from care homes, or at least limit their number. Um, Jeremy Hunt has waded into a row about free speech and bank accounts being blocked. And who had it worse, millennials or boomers? First story. In the early hours of this morning, Israel began its biggest incursion in the West Bank in 20 years. The offensive is being mounted against the city of Jenin, and it included aerial strikes and an Israeli ground offensive. At least eight Palestinians are known to have been killed. BBC journalist Yolanda Nell gave this report from Jenin. All around us, you've got uh, this acrid smell. Uh, Tires have been set on fire. There are protests here very early in the morning. And there have been gun battles continuing um, through the hour or so that we have been in Janine. Regular loud thuds of explosions coming from particularly uh, within Janine refugee camp, which is over uh, to my right. We've seen plumes of dark smoke coming up from there as well. Uh, It's obvious that this is still um, quite an intense uh, stage in what Israel says is its extensive uh, counter-terrorism operation. Uh, We're having statements from the Janine Brigade, which is made up of different Palestinian uh, militant groups, operates inside the camp. Um, There are hundreds of armed uh, gunmen believed uh, to be present there. Um, They're saying that their fighters will continue uh, um, fighting what they say, the occupation forces until their last breath. There are claims as well from the Palestinian militant groups that they have shot down uh, one Israeli uh, military drone. It was a drone that was used um, just after one o'clock in the morning to carry out the first airstrike. And to put things in perspective, although airstrikes are very common in the Gaza Strip, that is not something that we see used commonly in the West Bank at all. In fact, only in the last week uh, have we seen uh, such a, a kind of an attack being carried out by the Israeli military in the West Bank. Um, Now drones seem to have been used for several strikes to clear the way for ground forces to enter. Um, Things quickly became um, very uh, lively inside the camp, but all around me in Janine, there is a general strike. You don't see anybody uh, out on the streets, although we have had some gun battles in Janine too. We heard one not very long ago uh, just below the window here, and we've got the the sound of ambulances um, going past. We know that they are really struggling to reach what we know at the moment is at least dozens of people who are injured, Palestinians inside the camp. And there are claims from Palestinian militant groups that there are Israeli soldiers who are casualties as well. We don't know any uh, official comment on that from the Israeli military. So as one would expect, the Israeli government has claimed this is purely an operation against terrorists. And um, what that ignores is that in a city as densely populated as Janine, lots of civilians will be killed if you do airstrikes. What it also ignores is that militants in the West Bank are principally resisting illegal settlements and the expansion of a 50-year illegal occupation. Um, to discuss developments in the West Bank, I'm joined by Ben Jamal, director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Um, ben, we're used to seeing periodically bloody airstrikes by Israeli forces in Gaza. What's the significance of this happening in the West Bank? This is the large, largest military incursion uh, we've seen in the West Bank uh, for 20 years, really since the Second Intifada in 2002. And people, some of you viewers, I'm sure, will remember the assault on Janine, uh, where dozens of Palestinians were killed that took place that year. Um, it is effectively today, Janine is under siege. Um, Access for health services into Janine, out of Janine, have been cut off. 
Um, as Jolanda was saying in that piece, this is the first time for decades we have seen this type of air strikes being employed uh, on the West Bank. So it's extremely um, significant in that context. It's a significant ramping up of the level of violence being employed against Palestinians in the West Bank. But of course, it comes, it doesn't come as a random act, and it comes in the context of many months of an increase in the use of militarized repression under what is widely acknowledged as the most far-right, ultra-nationalist, extreme government that Israel's ever elected with members who are self-declared proud racists uh, and proud fascists. And they have been enacting severe violence against Palestinians since the beginning of 2023, more than 170 Palestinians killed in the West Bank. And could you talk a bit about Janine as a place? I mean, it's often described as a refugee camp, but obviously to most people, when you see it, it looks more like a city. So uh, could you explain the situation? What, what, what does a refugee camp mean um, in the context of the West Bank? There are many refugee camps across the West Bank. To put context on that, who, who are the people um, who are living in those refugee camps? Well, these are um, the Palestinians and mostly now, of course, the descendants of the Palestinians who were expelled uh, and driven from their homes in 1948 um, in the land that is now the state of Israel. Uh, and many of those, some of those were driven into exile outside of historic Palestine. Some of those are in refugee camps in other places in the Middle East, in Lebanon and Syria. Uh, but many are in uh, the West Bank. Um, the places that were originally, many of your viewers would have seen the photographs from 1948 of Palestinians living in effectively tented accommodation. Uh, over time, uh, as they were denied the right of return and have been denied it ever since, those refugee camps with support from the UN uh, became towns. So tents turned into permanent structures. And effectively, if you visit these places, they are densely occupied uh, towns, but where significant numbers of the population are the descendants of Palestinians driven from elsewhere in historic Palestine. It's a, an area where if you subject it to military assault, you are going to kill civilians. We've been receiving messages today from colleagues. Um, PSC runs delegations, takes trade unions out to Palestine. My colleagues across PSC have been receiving messages from people they know in Janine. One message we received talked about um, a building where there are 70 people trapped inside. Uh, many of them have been subjected today, have received severe injuries. They cannot exit uh, the building. They are being denied the right to leave. There is no medical support that they can receive. And the messages they were sending us, they were saying, please do what you can. We think we're going to die. They were expecting and anticipating that the building would be demolished over them. They were right to fear that because what we are also seeing is whole streets in Janine are being demolished with bulldozers today. Can you talk about, or not the politics of this is too broad a question, but what will the Palestinian authorities' response to this be? So, of course, normally when we see airstrikes in Gaza, you've got Hamas who are in control there. They are you know, at war with Israel, essentially. Um, the Palestinian Authority have a more complex relationship, I suppose, one could say, with the Israeli government. I mean, are they just completely irrelevant here? Obviously, this is happening in territory which they ostensibly um, are supposed to be in charge of. If we go through the torturous um, process of the Oslo Accords and how 
the West Bank was divided into areas where supposedly the Palestinian Authority is supposed to have control in some areas. You've got Area B, Area C, Area A that's designated on where um, the security presence is supposed to be uh, under Palestinian control. Um, that's irrelevant. When Israel decides we want to actually exercise uh, military control directly in a particular area, it chooses to do so. It has no regards for those accords. But of course, all of that is part of a wider system of control. And that's the context people need to, to remember. We have the West Bank under military occupation. Israel dictates what rights, what freedoms Palestinians will have, regardless of any designations under the Oslo Accords. You have uh, Gaza, which is still legally occupied, um, is been living under blockade for now 15 years. Israel controls absolute access to and from Gaza, what resources go in and out of Gaza, what freedom of movement. But all of that operates as part of, that, that relates to the occupied territory, um, but all of this operates under a system of repression um, that there is now a consensus across the international human rights community meets the legal definition of apartheid. And that includes the denial of rights to Palestinian citizens of Israel. So 20% of the population of Israel is Palestinian. The, the descendants of those uh, who remained in 1948 were not expelled and they are denied, denied full equality um, under the law and subject periodically to their own attacks as well by the Israeli police, etc. So you have a whole system of control that operates in different ways through different systems of laws. But what Palestinians are experiencing now in the West Bank is a ramping up of a continuing system of military repression, but an absolute ramping up of that system in the last, the last day. The second reading or a debate on the second reading in Parliament of an anti-BDS bill put forward by Michael Gove, which would essentially... Um, ban councils and universities from sort of beginning or carrying on or implementing boycotts of Israel. Um, could you talk about the significance of this from especially the perspective of Palestine Solidarity Campaign? It's a bill that, as you've said, the, the rationale for the government in introducing this is that it was going to bring in a bill that would specifically target um, campaigns that are um, active are advocating for Palestinian rights, but particularly to target the campaign, the Palestinian-led campaign for boycott, uh, divestment uh, and sanctions, and is an attempt to um, effectively prevent public bodies from making any decisions not to invest in, not to procure from companies that can be demonstrated to be complicit in Israel's violation of international law and human rights. The way the bill has been drawn, though, and, and the way it's been written uh, means that this is actually an attack on, on wider democratic rights. Uh, it will affect a whole range of campaigns for social justice, for climate justice. And what the bill actually says is a public body uh, cannot make a decision about how it spends money, uh, its investments, its procurement, that is based on moral or political disapproval of the actions of a state. Uh, and what that means is, for example, if you were campaigning for a, uh, let's say, a local government pension scheme or a university to divest from a company that can be demonstrated to be complicit in the deforestation being carried out, let's say, by the Brazilian government, then that could be rendered illegal because that involves 
the argument could be disapproval of the actions of that state. If you are campaigning uh, for there to be disinvestment from companies that can be demonstrated to be supporting China's oppression of the Uyghur people, then that involves a political or moral disapproval of the state. The government's made it specific. So although there is that very broad impact on people, which is why we've been able to bring together a coalition of more than 70 organizations, climate justice groups, trade unions, uh, civil liberty groups like Liberty, uh, the Methodist Church, the United Reformed Church, the Quakers, a wide range of bobblies who are deeply concerned about the impact of this bill. The government, uh, through the legislation, has also directly targeted campaigns that are calling for divestment uh, in relation to Israel. So the bill has that general clause, but it says a government minister can make a decision in parliament to say, well, we're not going to include, for example, Russia. So if you want to divest from a company that's complicit in Russia's oppression of the Ukrainian people, you can do so. But there's a clause that says you can never, no government minister can ever exclude from consideration actions relating to Israel or the occupied Palestinian territory. So uniquely, this bill gives a special privilege, special exemption to Israel uniquely as a state that must always be protected from divestment um, by UK public bodies. Let's go straight on to our next story. A group of right-wing MPs calling themselves the New Conservatives have launched an attack on Rishi Sunak. Their beef with the Prime Minister is that, in their view, he's allowed immigration levels to become too high, and they've put forward a 12-point plan to bring it down. The 25-strong group of MPs includes Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson, and their suggestions include the following. Closing temporary schemes that grant care workers eligibility for worker visas, um, only granting visas to skilled workers who earn £38,000 a year or more, so at the moment it's a lower figure, um, capping the number of refugees legally accepted for resettlement in the UK at 20000 and tightening restrictions on student visas to stop graduates staying in the UK for longer than two years without a job office. That's four of their 12 points. The new Conservative group says their 12 points could bring down net migration from over 600,000, where it was last year, to just over 200,000. They say um, that's where it was when the Tories got elected in 2019 and the manifesto in 2019 said it should be lower than it currently was. So they say this would be fulfilling um, Conservative manifesto commitments. Um, Miriam Cates is one of the right-wing MPs in the new Conservative group. She spoke to Michelle Hussain on Radio 4 this morning and resisted the charge that their plans would damage the care sector. We do need workers in the NHS. There's no doubt about that. But I think we can have an argument about whether we are ever going to make care work an attractive career for British people if we continue to allow lots and lots of people from abroad to come and do that job, who don't, by the way, necessarily stay in the NHS. We're not going to make it an attractive career. We're not going to raise wages if there is this route for employers to bring in people from uh, abroad. Um, so we do need to make a plan for training up British workers Sorry, to do, you do make these it, jobs you make rather it, than relying are, on... Are you saying you make it more working in care more attractive to people in the UK if there aren't foreign carers coming in to, for example, work in residential care homes? Presumably that can only no. be about pay. Well, pay and conditions were certainly part of it. But this applies to the whole... Uh, the whole theme, really, uh, of mass migration, you know, some people make this argument that we need to bring all these people in for our economy 
but actually it's had the opposite impact on our economy over recent years. Yes, GDP overall has grown slightly, but our GDP per capita growth, our productivity has been woeful. And that's because if employers can continue to bring over people from abroad on low wages, there's no incentive to invest in skills and capital and technology, the things that grow productivity. So that was Miriam Cates, a right-wing Tory MP. Ash, I want your thoughts on this, though, because the argument she put forward there sounded kind of left-wing. She was saying because workers have been able to get away with, sorry, because bosses have been able to get away with employing cheap labour, that means that wages and productivity haven't risen. How would you respond? This is why I actually think that the Starmer announced policy from a few weeks ago, that one of the things that they're going to do is introduce legislation which would make it more difficult for employers to underpay immigrant workers is a really good thing. Because rather than making it an issue of restricting movement, stopping people from being able to come here, start a new life for themselves, you know, maybe start a family. Instead, what you're doing is you're tackling the problem of low wages at the source. You're you're tackling it as an employer's issue. And I've never been opposed to introducing legislation like that, which does deal with those pockets of wage suppression that you get. Now, this isn't something which is happening across the entirety of the economy. The impact of immigration on wage suppression is often really dramatically overstated by the right, because as you mentioned, it gives their arguments this kind of left-wing veneer. But the right don't want to do the kinds of things which would, again, sort of tackle it at the source of, of what bosses choose to pay their workers. What you could do is enforce minimum wage legislation. You can uh, raise the minimum wage. You could do things like make it easier for workers, migrant workers in particular, to organise themselves in the forms of trade union, crack down on blacklisting and other sorts of punitive measures. Now, the Tories don't want to do that because that would strengthen organised labour. Instead, what they want to do is put it all on the side. So going, okay, if we have fewer migrants, we're not going to have this, this phenomenon of lower wages. Now, what what they want is lower wages, but for British workers, not for migrant workers. Yeah, because I, I think the other distracting thing about her argument is that the government actually has quite a lot to do with the levels of wages that the care sector pay because the government pays for so much of it, right? So if, if the government wanted to raise wages in the care sector, there'd be a very direct way of doing it, um, which didn't really involve restricting migration. So I do feel like there's probably something else going on here. Um, I want to get up a couple of charts because the politics of migration in Britain right now is actually very interesting. Um, you've obviously got lots of Tory party MPs trying to make this a political issue because they think that it's the only thing that they might be able to beat the Labour Party on. They've got no story to tell about the economy. People's wages are declining. They think if we get migration up to the top of the agenda, maybe we'll have a chance in hell of keeping some seats. And I suppose the reason why they might think this would be a opportune moment to try and raise the salience of migration is because um, lots of people are arriving in Britain at the moment. So we've got here total arrivals and net change in UK population over the years. Um, And as you can see, total arrivals is at a record high. 1.2 million people um, arrived in Britain last year. Um, The net migration, because 600,000 left, is 600,000. So net migration of 600,000 last year. And then you can see between 2004, so that's when Poland joined the EU, and 2016, so the EU referendum, basically net migration hovered at around 250,000. Before that, it was significantly lower. Um, So it has dramatically increased since the EU referendum, which is something probably not many people would have predicted. 
And what's also very interesting, and I suppose particularly positive actually, is that the public are getting much more positive about immigration, even as this is all going on, or perhaps because this is all going on. Um, I don't want to imply what the causality is. This is voters being asked um, whether immigration should be reduced. Um, and you can see that it used to be a pretty, pretty big majority, to be fair. So almost 70% said immigration should be reduced either a little or a lot. Now, um, just over 40% agree with that statement. So no longer a majority. Um, at the same time, while it's still a minority of the public who think it should be increased a little or a lot, that has gone up from 10%, so a very small minority, to a significant minority of about 24%. So you can see the public are warming to immigration since the referendum. And this is another interesting one. This is probably more positive to look at. Voters are now more likely to say that immigration has had a positive impact on the UK than a negative one. Um, so people who think immigration has had a positive impact on the UK. That used to be 35%. It's now 46%. When I say used to be in 2015, it was 35%. It's now 46%. And people who thought immigration had a negative impact on the UK used to be 40% is now 30%. So it used to be that more people thought immigration had a negative effect than a positive one. That was in 2015. Now, um, the people who think it's had a positive effect vastly outweigh the people who think it's had a negative effect. There are a bunch of explanations you could say. Why has immigration gone up after the EU referendum, but concern about it has gone down? Now, one possible answer is to say people didn't really care about numbers. They just cared about control. And now, even though there are more people arriving than ever, because we've left the EU, um, it, 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 it's according to legislation made here. So it's, it's not free movement. Um, there are 600,000 people, or over a million people, in fact, arriving last year because of laws made in Parliament, which means they can come. So you can say this, was a, this is a British-made phenomenon now, not a European-made phenomenon. That's one explanation. I don't find it particularly convincing. Another explanation is it's just all about what newspapers write about. So obviously, before the EU referendum, the amount of headlines you would get, especially about Eastern European migrants, was just intense. You know, constant, constant, constant headlines about Eastern European migrants, which created a lot of, I think, disquiet um, create a lot of hatred, one could say. Um, and those died down after the EU referendum, I suppose, for obvious reasons, because it was no longer a political wedge issue. Free movement had been a massive political wedge issue. So you got a lot of politicians who were trying to take advantage of it as a wedge issue. Um, the third explanation, I think, is that the kind of migration we're seeing now is a bit different to the kind of migration we were seeing before the EU referendum, in that people are coming from everywhere, literally everywhere, so it's very difficult for, and also people are coming to big cities because this is very much students, people working in care. It's not as concentrated, I think, as some of the EU migration was. Now, I lived in a place where there was concentrated Polish migration. I thought it was great. I, I, I love when new communities arrive in my area, but I suppose it does become more visible. And so if you are a bit xenophobically inclined, if that's what we can say, um, then potentially the migration, the immigration that we saw before the referendum was more visible than the immigration we see now because people are coming from, from everywhere. Next story. Jeremy Hunt has waded into a row about free speech and banking, which was prompted in part by a claim from Nigel Farage that he'd had multiple bank accounts blocked. The Telegraph reports this. Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, 
is understood to be deeply concerned that overzealous lenders are closing down accounts because they disagree with customers' opinions and has asked City Minister Andrew Griffith to investigate the issue. Whitehall sources said that results of a consultation on the subject will be published within weeks after it was launched earlier this year in the wake of PayPal blocking the accounts of free speech groups. The controversy flared up again last week after the leading Brexiteer, Nigel Farage, revealed his accounts had been closed by his bank. A vicar was also dropped as a customer after criticising his lender's stance on LGBTQ+. Interesting sentence, your stance on LGBTQ+. Um, The Treasury is poised to recommend a more rigid notice period if payment providers, including high street lenders, want to close a customer's account, as well as requiring banks to provide more information about why they have decided to shut accounts. Regulators will be able to take action against banks that break the rules. So the two examples cited there by The Telegraph concern Nigel Farage and an anti-LGBT vicar. Let's start with Farage. Um, So he claims he had his bank account cancelled and that he was unable to open an account with six other banks. So he'd been locked out of the British banking system. That's his claim. Um, In part, he blamed his support for Brexit. The banks you see themselves are part of the big corporate structures in this country. These are the organisations who did not want Brexit to happen. Uh, And I think in my case, probably the corporate world will never, ever forgive me. Because they know if I hadn't done what I did with the help of thousands of people in in, in our people's army, there never would have been a referendum, let alone a victory. I'm the one that is to carry the blame. Farage cited other possible reasons for his accounts being suspended, including um, a claim made in Parliament by Chris Bryant, that's a Labour MP, um, that Farage had received money from Russia. Now, Farage says those claims were made without evidence, but he's unable to sue Bryant for libel as the claims are protected under parliamentary privilege. So MPs can say whatever they want in Parliament, um, and there's something called parliamentary privilege, which means you can't sue them. Probably good that it exists. You know, it's, it's good that you can have MPs that sort of can say anything without fear of of legal consequence. Well, I suppose there's arguments on both sides here, but I can see the argument for it. Farage is saying that Chris Bryant did this. Um, that's now potentially scaring off the banks. And um, so that's Farage. What about the vicar the Telegraph mentioned? This anti-LGBTQ plus vicar that I'm sure you're all... Um, desperate to learn about. Well, he's called Richard Fothergill, and he is founder of the Filling Station Evangelical Network. I suppose, you know, filling yourself with spirituality or well-being, I'm not sure, with pride, love, all the things that one might talk about in an evangelical church. And the facts in this case seem somewhat disputed. Um, So I'm going to quote directly um, from this Times article. So Fothergill typed out his views on transgender ideology to the Building Society on June the 18th. He responded to a monthly email he gets from the Yorkshire Building Society asking for his feedback after noticing that it was displaying support for Pride Month on its website. The minister, who no longer has his own parish but founded the filling station Evangelical Network, wrote out a couple of paragraphs about how he did not agree with trans ideology or the idea that you can have alternative genders being pushed on children. Fothergill said, quote, I was polite all the way through. I was pointing out that they are a financial house. Surely they should just be worrying about financial issues. On June the 22nd, he received a letter from Yorkshire Building Society about his, quote, views regarding LGBTQIA+. It said the comments he made were not tolerable and the Building Society had a zero approach to discrimination. Um, The Times say the Building Society disputes this particular version of events. Their spokesperson told the Times this. We never close savings accounts based on different opinions regarding beliefs or feedback provided by our customers. 
We only ever make the difficult decision to close a savings account if a customer is rude, abusive, violent, or discriminates in any way based on the specific facts, comments, and behavior in each case. Now, in this case of the vicar, I'm, I'm not sure anyone's seen this particular two-paragraph email he sent to Nationwide, so it's unclear to me um, if he was kicked out of the bank purely because of his political positions um, or because he said something abusive to a staff member. I don't know. I will be unable to say um, or which of those possibilities is potentially true. I don't trust Nigel Farage's account of many things. So, you know, when he makes a, a Twitter video about what has happened to his bank account, I'm not going to take it at face value, frankly. At the same time, um, I've been listening to various interviews on this today, and it does seem like there is a bit of an issue when it comes to banks and taking people's account away. And it's probably not the one that Nigel Farage is talking about. So Nigel Farage seems to think, you know, he's, well, he says explicitly in that video, doesn't he? There are these Remainer bankers and they hate Nigel Farage because he won Brexit and now they're taking it out on him by shutting his bank accounts down. Now, I don't think that's true. Um, I don't think the guys in the banks care so much about Brexit that they would take someone's bank account away. It seems incredibly far-fetched to me. What does seem to be the case um, and this was from various interviews I've listened to today, as I said, is that it was the case that the EU, especially, and we took on the laws ourselves, it wasn't you know, imposed by the EU, to try and legislate against money laundering, which is a very good thing to do, should legislate against money laundering. They gave banks lots of, or they made the costs very high of not cancelling someone's bank account. So if you as a bank were found to have enabled someone to do money laundering, the punishments were huge. Um, but if you got rid of someone's bank account or denied or cancelled or closed someone's bank account under false premises, so they hadn't actually done any money laundering and you close their bank account, the consequences are nil. So you have this sort of system whereby the incentives for a bank are, well, if in doubt, shut it down. And so it does seem like there are a number of people whose, whose banks have been shut down because the bank was in doubt. And at the moment, there isn't that much recourse to have your bank account opened again. And so while this is Nigel Farage, I don't have much sympathy for the guy not being able to collect his wages for doing his horrible show. Uh, I don't know what the guy spends his money on. Um, cups of tea while he's out looking at the channel to see if any desperate migrants are coming over in boats. Um, I don't have uh, too much sympathy for the guy, either in terms of how he makes or how he spends his money. But it does seem like probably you should have some recourse to get your bank account reopened if it has been closed and it hasn't been explained to you properly why that has happened. Um, this is not a red-brown alliance. This is taking a principal position um, on the power of banks. Um, Skies K. Burley was less taken by this story. She was rather dismissive, in fact. So she tweeted this, If eight separate banks don't want your custom, I suppose you'd start to wonder why. Now, this is a serious news reporter, right? K. Burley, Skies star interviewer. She can be a fairly entertaining interviewer. But this, to me, does not seem like a particularly sensible response to a story about what I think is a genuine civil liberties issue, right? So, so someone who has had their bank account closed or a number of bank accounts closed and it hasn't been explained to them properly why that has happened. As I say, me as a journalist, I don't take anything that guy says at face value. I also think we don't know enough to completely dismiss this story, especially when you've got people in politics and people in the know saying, to be honest, actually, we probably do need to implement some kind of recourse for customers if their banks get shut down, which to be honest, seems to be what Jeremy Hunt was talking about. Let's go straight on to our next story. Who has or had it better? Boomers or millennials? It's the generational war that won't stop raging. And Owen Jones and Dawn Neeson debated the topic on Good Morning Britain. Boomers felt optimistic. Everything we 
were getting was a positive for us because we'd started off from a low base after the war years. Um, whereas millennials are starting off from a high base. So everything they are expecting, it's, it's slightly entitled. Sorry, Owen. Oof. Um, I know, I know. I'm not going to call you a snowflake like that, but you're slightly entitled. So, But because you're starting off from that high base, you feel disappointed with everything you're getting. I think, you know, I think basically every generation has faced challenges and we're not really comparing like with like, are we? I mean, the difference is the attitude. I said, we expected nothing so everything we got was a bonus mm. millennials expect everything so everything is a disappointment millennials wow. born between 1980 to 1995 i'm a geriatric millennial that's the 84 i was gonna say that you're, my my aging fingernails. you're the entitled generation no, Owen. i think that's unfair i'll give you one basic reason so half of baby boomers own their own home by the age of 30 for millennials it's 30 percent. it's not because millennials are spending all their money on cappuccinos or netflix it's just one basic statistic. 40 years ago, the average home cost three times the average salary. It's now eight and a half times the average salary. Now, it, it just housing costs, you spend far more as a percentage of your income, even if you're a private renter. And one of the reasons for that is, take right to buy, lots of homes were flogged off but not replaced. 40% of the council homes that got flogged off under right to buy and are let out by buy-to-let buy landlords. And they're charging twice the rent. Mm. So if you're a millennial, you don't get council housing. Don't even think about it. You'll be stuck on a waiting list until you're probably actually in your retirement. You, you can't get a home often because house prices are so, are so expensive. But the other thing is the private rent sector is a rip-off. You're paying huge amounts of your wage packet on private rents. Yeah. And you've, you've made one other point, which I think is really important, and that's how things seem to be getting better. We've gone through the longest squeeze in wages since the defeat of but Napoleon, long before us. you were born, <laughs> at the Battle of Waterloo. First of all, Owen, doesn't it? It just looks better and better. He was, I think, a few years ago. GQ called him the ninth worst dressed man in Britain. Now he's got a suit, T-shirt, chain. Real glow up. Well done. Who's right, though? We're here to talk about the issues, not the fashion sense. Owen was certainly correct on the home ownership point. So this chart from the Times shows what proportion of each generation owned a home by any given age. In the orange are boomers. So that's people born between 1946 and 1964. As you can see, they became homeowners pretty young. So half of boomers owned their own home by the age of 29. That sounds quite incredible now. In the dark red are millennials. So people born between 1981 to 1996. So I am one of those. Only 27% of millennials owned a home aged 29. And it's not until age 36 that the majority of millennials became homeowners. So I suppose I still have some hope. Maybe in three years' time, I will myself be one. It seems a little bit dubious at the moment. What about Dawn Neeson's point about expectations about what life should be like, though? Well, on that front, this chart might support her point. So it shows what proportions of people's income were spent on different goods and services over time. So as you can see, between 1960 and 2010, housing costs have gone up. We can see well that would be the case. Rents have gone up. The cost of buying a house has gone up. But also, so has the proportion of people's incomes going on leisure activity. And as you can see, that's partly because food has got a lot cheaper. Now, obviously, food between last year and this year has got massively more expensive because we've had short-term inflation. That's been a big problem for people who have been budgeting for food as it has cost over the past 20 years. People aren't used to seeing the price of a particular good go up by 15, 20, 30% in, in a year. So that's why it's caused massive problems for people today. But over the long term, food, which is obviously you know, one of the big essential items, 
massively gone down in price. And what has happened is that people are spending a lot more money on leisure than they used to. So I suppose when people say we had it so hard in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, you guys have it great now. One of the things they might be talking about is that people spend more money in this day and age on leisure goods, having a good time, than they do on the essentials for life. So when they say, we used to have it so hard, you have it so good, maybe that's what they mean. One thing to note though, those stats I just showed you aren't broken down by age. So it's over time, not by age, not by generation. And it does seem to be older generations who are taking most advantage of a boom in the leisure industry. So in 2002, it was under 49s who spent the most on restaurants and hotels. By 2022, it was 50 to 64-year-olds who spent the most on those two luxury items. So again, this kind of makes sense to me. So in general, we spend a lot more, or the population at large, spend a lot more on leisure and luxury items than they used to. That does make some sense to me. Um, so this idea that in general, we now all spend a bit more on leisure activities than, than people used to in the 1960s. I should say again, it's kind of odd having this conversation in the, the moment where we have this real cost of living crunch, because I know there'll be lots of people watching this thinking, I am not spending any money on leisure activities at the moment, because we have inflation at 10, 15%. We are in a cost of living crisis. But again, we're looking at the long durée. So in general, over the past 20 or so years, people have spent a lot more on leisure than people did in the 60s and the 70s. That's why you might get older people sort of saying, it was not like this in our day. In our day, we didn't get to get takeaways once a week or go to the pub all the time. Those were all special occasions. Um, this has completely changed now. At the same time, who are the people who are sort of driving this big boom in entertainment consumption, let's say, or leisure consumption? It is in part people who are over 50, probably because their houses have increased in value, so they're feeling fairly well off. I mean, of course, the Navarra media position, which I completely concur with, the struggle is between classes, not generations, but there are interesting divides, especially when it comes to property. How do we resolve this? Wages should go up. The price of houses should go down, please. But we need a society which is less based on what wealth you have, what wealth you are sitting on, and more based on how hard you work, right? Not that, I mean, obviously I want a four-day week, I work a four-day week, but how good a job you do, not how lucky you were in terms of what house you bought, when and where. Thanks to everyone for watching this evening. Remember to come back here tomorrow at 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.